would open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 5 this morning. Hosea chapter 5, we'll look at chapter 5 this morning down through chapter 6, verse 3. So Hosea 5 through Hosea 6, 3. And understand, really, I think the context of this passage as it was intended to be given is just to remind you when you're reading your Bible, um, there are times it's helpful to remember that the chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired. I just want to remind you of that. Um, there are times that the chapter division comes at a very awkward place, and uh, a, a train of thought is interrupted. And so I think this, this particular passage is definitely uh, one of those uh, times where the chapter division is not particularly helpful, and so that's why we'll go on into chapter 6, uh, particularly as you understand the, the, the overall theme of the book of Hosea is a God who loves and a God who redeems. And God wanting to communicate that uh, does not leave us hanging as we would were we just simply to stop uh, at the end of chapter 5. I don't think the message, uh, I don't think it flows in the text that way. And so uh, just, just remind you, when you're reading, be aware of that. Uh, you, you might want to keep on reading maybe a few verses into the next chapter, you might uh, be able to, to grasp and glean more out of the Scripture as you do that. So Hosea chapter 5 uh, through chapter 6, verse 3, out of respect for reading God's precious inspired word, would you please stand with me as we read Hosea 5. God speaking to the people, we've talked about the wrath that they have earned through their forsaking God. And there's sin in chapter 4, and so now in chapter 5, he speaks of the consequence. He says this, Hear this, O priest, give heed, O house of Israel, listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone deep in their depravity, but I will just chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them, and they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. For the new moon will devour them in their land. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at Beth Haven. Behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I will declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. 
For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And now the gospel where the law has inflicted its wound says this, come Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain like the spring rain watering the earth. Let's pray. Father, we stand here on the threshold of this particular sermon preached by Hosea so many years ago. Father, we find it so appropriate, so relevant to us that we have broken your law that we have sinned against you, Father, that you have brought chastisement and pain to us. Father, you have wounded us, but in Jesus you will heal us as well. Father, may we see our guilt this morning. May we understand that it is wrath and chastisement that we have rightly earned and that we are getting what we deserve from a righteous and holy God who judges perfectly. Father, we're thankful for the love of God who administers healing perfectly as well. We're thankful for your son, Jesus, Father, who bore all of your wrath. He drank everything you could pour out upon him. And it is by his stripes that we can be healed. So, Father, help us to understand the healing power of the gospel, the redeeming nature that you are, that you possess, that you demonstrate to us. May we worship as a result. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. We live in a world of mixed up values. Values that call good evil and evil good. In fact, it's come to light in a stark way through the shooting that just occurred this past week in Colorado. I think anybody with a sane mind says that that was inherently evil, satanic. It was certainly not of God, and yet there are people out there who are extolling this as a hero. I read an article yesterday that said that Facebook has seen an absolute flood of new pages, fan pages for this psychotic killer, opening up, praising him for what he's done and calling for more acts of violence that mirror this young man's depravity. We live in a world that is so depraved that it literally assigns 
good quality to that which is evil. We live in a spiritual realm that, while professing to know God, does not know God and does the same thing. And so it's incumbent upon us, brothers and sisters, as people of the book, as people who want to know the Word of God, who want to know God, that we train our minds biblically, critically, to examine every facet of life, to understand what is truly right and what is truly wrong. We have so many mixed up definitions about what things are. For example, if you ask someone today, what is love? You would get a myriad of different answers. Love is pleasing myself. Love is perhaps sacrificing for others. How is love shown? You would come up with even more answers. But even more troubling is when we try to assign love to God and We try to get people to understand what is the love of God. How is the love of God demonstrated to us today that we might know it and thereby know Him? We live in an antinomian age where uh, people want no law. Where they don't want any uh, set (coughs) standards of right or wrong or uh, standards of absolute truth. We live in a very postmodern age where Truth is deconstructed and it is what you make it. And so people can determine for themselves things like, how does God show he's love? What does it mean that God is love? God, (coughs) in the book of Hosea, shows very clearly that he is love. And yet when we come to places like chapter 5, we even ourselves may struggle at times to find that God is love. When you read about the chastisement of God's own chosen people, some would say, how can God be loved? That is not love. To treat your people like he has described, he will treat them in Hosea 5. Surely if God is love, God will overlook that. We maybe ourselves struggle to find love at the root of our own discipline. Perhaps we struggle to find love at the root of the discipline that we are called to administer to others, our children in the church, where discipline is necessary. How in the world could that be loving? Perhaps some of us have been or even do discipline out of frustration because our lives were interrupted. We didn't like what happened and not because we truly love others. And if that's our grid for understanding how God is acting in Hosea 5, then I can understand where we might confuse God being loving and redeeming with his chastisement. But God isn't disciplining because he's been interrupted. God is not disciplining the nation of Israel because uh, he has been uh, thrown off his own game. Perhaps we have experienced discipline in our lives out of a sheer desire of someone else simply to control us or force us into external conformity and not out of genuine love for us. I can understand that if that is your grid for understanding discipline and chastisement, then we wouldn't understand God rightly to be a loving God. 
But the fact remains that he is and that he demonstrates his love in Hosea chapter 5 by his discipline, by his chastisement. God disciplines us because he loves us. God disciplines the nation of Israel because he loves them and ultimately has a purpose for them, as Scott read in Romans chapter 11. That God is not going to cast them away, that God is ultimately going to save them. And because of that covenant promise and reality, God must discipline them to bring them back into right standing with him. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 and 10 tell us this. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. For they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of earthly fathers, as seemed best to them. But he, speaking of God, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. We need to understand that God has saved us. God called the nation of Israel to holiness that they might reflect him. If you think about Abraham, the the father of Israel, when Abraham was called, Abraham was not called because he was a righteous man. Abraham was called at a time when he was an idolater. But God called Abraham out so that he could make Abraham a reflection of his own character, that he would be holy and separate from the pagan nations around him, and so on and so forth. He worked through the history of the nation of Israel to make them a holy people. And at times, that required their own discipline because he loved them. God's discipline in Hosea shows us that he loves them. God's discipline in Hosea shows us that he is not doing it to be capricious or mean. He does it simply because he loves them and for the purpose of conforming them to his own likeness, to his will, to the end that they would worship him rightly. And so that in the end, he is glorified. We've established the love the covenant faithfulness of God to His people Israel through Hosea's own marriage. There was the tireless pursuit of a wife who was a prostitute who continually left him, and yet he went back and bought her. One that was rightly his by covenant. He had to pay the slave's wage to bring her home. Just as God in Christ rightfully owns us as His creation, yet He sends His Son to buy us back after we have broken the law. After we have broken a relationship with Him. We've seen unending forgiveness in Hosea's life and thus as as a picture of God's love for Israel. We saw Him restore Gomer. We saw Him cleanse her and build her up and make her a faithful wife. And now we come to chapter 5 where we must establish the love of God not only in the, in the feel-good stories of redemption, but we must establish the love of God and chastisement on sinful people. Brothers and sisters, God cannot be loved if God does not punish sin. So we must understand how the judgment of God fits into the love of God this morning. And so, first of all, I want you to see that His judgment is without partiality. 
Because God's judgment is wholly righteous, it is without error, it's without anger, it is without uh, a wrong-headed thinking about control issues, it, it, because it is holy and not at all merely trying to conform us externally, we must understand that it's without partiality. As God delivers the sentence in Hosea chapter 5, He sentences the sinful people of Israel. And He makes certain that they understand that no one will be immune from His judgment. And certainly we've all been part of uh, situations in our life where um, certain people were immune from chastisement. We can probably go back to our days in school and remember there was one kid in the class who could do no wrong. I I can still remember um, as a child who uh, regularly was in uh, disciplinary action in my early elementary years because I liked to talk. I I just enjoyed talking and and so I visited a lot with my friends when I wasn't supposed to be visiting with my friends and and uh and other kids in the class were always in trouble but there was one little girl in our class who was never in trouble her father happened to be uh one of the most well-known uh oil and gas tycoons in West Texas there's a building not far from here that bears his name Josh Schneider works for him You can talk to Josh about who that is after church then. But his daughter was never in trouble. And I remember being frustrated as a child that that this one girl could do no wrong. The rest of the class could be in trouble, but she was never in trouble. The teacher that taught that class, if I remember correctly, did not last a whole lot longer because of the complaints of parents about her unfair inequitable treatment of others in the class as compared to some. But God's judgment is not like that. And and no doubt you can look back in your life and say, you know, yeah, there was a time when I was treated unfairly. There, There was partiality shown on a sports team or maybe in my home. But God is not like that. Look at the text this morning. God comes in and He lays waste to everyone. He says, hear this, O priest. Hear this, O house of Israel. Hear this, house of the king. God says, listen, this is for everybody. Priest, you are corrupt. You're going to suffer my chastisement. The nation as a whole, all the individuals, the house of Israel, you will suffer this. Listen, O house of the king, you who are politically high up, you will pay the price as well. God's judgment is without partiality. It's going to apply to everyone. And so when we understand justice and chastisement that is right, we understand that God applies it equally to everyone. Nobody's going to get a pass. Everybody has sinned, therefore everybody will pay. The priests have already been specifically mentioned in chapter 4, verse 9. We talked about that. Hosea goes on here and he mentions two places that are of interest to us this morning. He says, you've been a snare at Mizpah and a, a net spread out on Tabor. These places were areas of Israel known for their hunting. They were known to be rich with wild game, and so people would come there and, and, and cast their nets and their snares and entrap the animals. 
But they also became sinners later on in this time in Israel's history for sinners of idolatrous worship. These are those places that up in the mountains that uh, the people went and built their altars to Baal. You think of Elijah and Mount Carmel. Certain places around the nation that just attracted were known to be the place that you went to worship false gods. And God says to everyone, you are all guilty, you will all pay the price because you have been like the hunters at these places ensnaring and entrapping others along the way. You remember that it was first Israel who went into idolatry with Judah close behind. And God did not allow Israel to get off from that charge. They were responsible for leading others astray. So regardless of what level of participation, maybe it was a little idol, maybe it was a lot of idolatry, they would all bear the guilt and punishment they had earned. No one is immune to sin. Brothers and sisters, no one is immune to sin. There's not one of us in here this morning that is more righteous or more holy than anyone else. We are all equally sinful. Can I just say it this way? There's not any of us who are more holy or more righteous than Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler or the Khmer Rouge. We are all sinners. We are all guilty. We have all been completely and radically depraved. Hosea says that the revolter is literally someone who deviates or swerves out of the way. One who commits acts of treachery and rebellion. Have dug themselves deeper and deeper into sin. Look at verse 2. The revolters have gone deep in their depravity. Every one of us are capable of unspeakable evil. Every one of us. We tend to think because we haven't done certain things that that we're not capable of certain things. Brothers and sisters, we are all depraved. And the smallest sin, no matter how small, the more we indulge in it, the digger we deep, uh, the, the deeper we dig ourselves into our depravity, the more we root ourselves into it. Our sliding into sin is not passive. It is something that as we do it, it becomes easier. It becomes less convicting. The deeper we dig ourselves into our depravity. Listen to Romans 1, 18 through 21. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Do you know what you have to do to sin? You first have to suppress the truth. You do. All of us are born with a conscience. Even a lost man who is without Christ has a conscience that tells him murdering someone is wrong. And so to cross that hurdle, you first must begin to suppress the truth. 
in your lust for sin. Paul goes on, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The pagan in Africa who's never been to church is just as much without excuse as we are because they have suppressed the truth that God has given them when they sin. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. The more we suppress the truth, the more we find it easy to slide further and further into depravity as Israel did, because Israel did not wake up one morning and say, how did we get here? Just little encroachments, small baby steps into the gods who surrounded them in the pagan nations. You know, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, you find that that God gives an interesting principle. And it's a great principle that we should all uh, bear in mind. And uh, some have called it the wedge principle. When we're making decisions, we need to ask, is this going to open the door for further sin later on? Because God gives a command to Israel, as you're going through and as you are subduing these pagan nations, not only are you not to participate, you're not even to ask questions about them. Don't even be curious about what they did on that altar or how they used this idol. Ignore it. Destroy it. Move on. Don't get bogged down in it. Because the more you suppress the truth and the more curious you become about sin, the further into sin you'll go. Paul quotes David in Psalm 14 In Romans chapter 3, he says this in verse 11, There is none who understands, there is none who seek for God. That's us. There's not one person on this earth born seeking God. They're seeking to rebel against God, but they are not seeking God himself. For all have sinned, Paul says, And come short of the glory of God. The wages of that sin is death. That is what they are about to experience because they have dug themselves into depravity. Brothers and sisters, let us be careful. That although we are children of God, that we think ourselves above sin. Sin still lies at the door. And the more we suppress the truth of the gospel in our daily lives, the more we suppress the, the, the reality of Christ in our lives, the easier it will become to dig ourselves deeper and deeper into sin. Now we move on to a topic that God's Wrath is earned, that God is equitable 
Without partiality in his judgment, he's going to judge all because all have revolted and gone astray deep in their depravity. I will judge all of them. But now we go on to consider the matter of a relationship with God. And I'm going to tell you this, and if you've done this, I'm not throwing stones at you, but I do want you to think about this. One of the worst questions that we can ask people in our personal evangelism is whether or not they have a personal relationship with God. Now, I've been through a lot of evangelism seminars and classes that, that talk about how to share the gospel, and many of them have started out with this. You, you go up and you approach a person, you begin to talk to the person, and they say, listen, I would like to ask you, do you have a personal relationship with God? And the answer to that question is always yes. Everyone has a relationship with God. Everyone has a relationship with Jesus Christ. The question is, what kind of a relationship is it? Because every baby that is born into this world has a relationship with God of judgment. Every child ever born, because they are sinners, have a relationship with God. The question we should ask, is your relationship with God one of judgment or one of forgiveness? And so I think the far more biblically accurate and effective question is this. Your relationship with God is already in existence. Is God judging you because of your sin? Or is God saving you because of your faith? That is the question we need to ask people. We need to be crystal clear that they are under God's wrath. That was the case with Israel. Look at what he says. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. We, we would tend to think, here's what we would tend to think. We would tend to think that Israel had gone astray from God and broken the covenant relationship and there was no relationship. They're out there on their own and that's not why God says. God says, I know them. I still have a relationship with him, but it is not a positive relationship. They're not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel, you have defiled yourself. Your deeds will not allow you to return to me. I have a relationship with you. Our English Bibles have rendered, I think, poor translation of the last half of verse 2. It has most recently been translated as God giving a promise of this relationship of chastisement. I will chastise all of them, but that's not true. God is not making a promise in the last half of verse 2. Would you look at that? I want you to look at it, and, and, and it might be helpful if you want to make a note there. Because this is something we need to understand about God that's absolutely critical. That last phrase is without any verb. It simply reads this way. I am chastisement toward all. 
God doesn't say, I will chastise them all. The Hebrew literally reads, I am chastisement toward all. God in His holiness, just as 1 John 4, 8 has instructed us and taught us that God is love, so now God says, I am chastisement toward all. That's a good conversation starter. What do you think about God? Who is God? God is chastisement towards us all. Wow. That's what he says to Israel. I am chastisement towards all because of their sin, because of their sin nature and because of their sinful choices, digging themselves deeper and deeper. I am chastisement. We all have a personal relationship. Then I want you to see quickly the consequences of their sin. Beginning in verse 3, as God begins to talk about the consequence of influence. Now, this is something to consider. Usually, God has thus far in the book of Hosea used the words Ephraim and Israel interchangeably. But now here in this passage, it seems to indicate that God is not uh, doing that. That when he speaks of Ephraim, he's speaking of the, the actual tribe of Ephraim. One of the, the larger tribes, the first tribe to really begin to indulge themselves in the worship of Baal. And, and, and God says this, I know Ephraim and I know Israel. And Ephraim ha has led Israel astray. Look what he says, Ephraim, you played the harlot and now Israel has defiled itself. There's consequences for our sin. Ephraim is the ringleader of spiritual harlotry. And God looks down, as it were, and nothing about them is hidden. God knows and God holds them responsible for leading the rest of Israel and even Judah into sin. There's a consequence of sin it comes across as delusion. Look, look what the text says. He says this, I know Ephraim and Israel. But then in verse 4, they don't know God. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit, a spirit of harlotry is within them and they do not know the Lord. It, 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 sin has become so prevalent... That they are living in such a state of delusion by digging themselves deeper and deeper into sin. That they cannot even know the God who owns them. He knows them, but they can't know Him. Now I want you to remember the particulars of their idolatry. It wasn't just that they worshipped idols. It was that they attempted to combine the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. You know, human nature has always done that. We try not to deny God altogether, but we tweak God. That was one of the problems in the 
Roman Catholic Church, when Constantine declared Christianity the official religion of state, he did not do away with the pagan religion of Rome. He simply incorporated it into Christian worship and Christianized it. He changed the names. Uh, Diana was no longer Diana. It became Mary. And many of the Roman Catholic practices have their root in the pagan worship of Rome. And that's what always has happened. Human nature doesn't want to do away with God, but we want to tweak God and just kind of bring Him into the pagan worship that we're participating in. That's what they were doing. They attempted to make God a product of their imagination by simply modifying Him according to their own designer lusts. But brothers and sisters, you cannot combine anything of God with anything else and still claim to know the God of Scripture. We talked about this at 10 o'clock. We can't imagine that God uh, is what we want Him to be and still pretend to think that He is the God of the Bible. God has revealed Himself clearly. And we must take Him as He has revealed Himself. We don't have the luxury to say, He's a God of love, but I just don't see Him as a God of justice. Then He's not God. We can't say, He's a Redeemer, but He has no claims over my life, no authority over my life, no lordship over my life, and pretend that He's still God, because that's what He said He was. He was all of these things. So we must be careful not to tweak the God of Scripture. This delusion, they had begun to tweak God so that God says, I know them. They think they know me, but they don't. The more we tweak God, the more we will continue to tweak God. Because sin is a continual and progressive blinding quality. Sin is never neutral, brothers and sisters. Let's not ever think that we can begin to do something and it won't go further. It will. It always goes further. In verse 5, here, they not only do these sins, but they take pride in doing them. Look at verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies against them. What's he talking about? He is talking about their sin, their worship of idols. They are proud of it. And they are gloating in it. And they are boasting in it. And he says, that testifies against them. Romans one thirty two. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. We see that in our world, don't we? That, that it's just one little thing, but as that thing goes along... It becomes worse and worse, and then they begin to worship in it and glory in it, and then they want you to participate in it. I'll give you an example. I remember as a child, I was seven years old the first time my parents ever took me to Washington, D.C. We arrived into Reagan uh, Airport that night. It was late at night. We were trying to find our hotel, trying to find a place to eat, and we're driving all over downtown Washington, which if, if you've been there, Alex, you guys live there, you know. Uh, it's one-way streets, and it can get really confusing, and you can end up in Maryland or Virginia or wherever if you're not careful. Remember, we made a turn onto a street and ended up in the middle of a parade. Literally driving in the middle of the parade, surrounded by people carrying signs. 
This was in 1981-82. Somewhere in that neighborhood. That happened to be one of the first gay marches in Washington, D.C. And at that time, the gay community in America simply wanted us to know that they were there. We just want to come out of the closet. We want you to know that we're here. That's all we're asking for. But it didn't stop there. Because as time has gone on, not only have they wanted us to know they're there, they want us to be tolerant of their lifestyle. That that they want you, you don't have to join in, but you need to be tolerant of us. Just let us live and let live, let us alone. This is our lifestyle, not yours. We want you to do that. But even there, it's not been satisfied. Now they want to continue to push the agenda further that not only do we want you to be tolerant, we want you to be educated. And now to read some of the latest language and some of the legal things that are out there that is quite frightening, not only do they want you to be tolerant, not only do they want you to be educated, they want you to participate with them. And if you don't, Heaven forbid. It's Romans 1. They not only do them, but they take pleasure and pride in others doing it as well. It's delusional state. But then there's the consequence of abandonment. Look what God says in verses 6 and 7. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. Now, we can only imagine that in the syncretistic system they had set up, they were still trying to offer sacrifices to God. And that is obviously what this is indicating. They go and they get their, 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 their beautiful little unspotted lamb. And they get their calves and they get their doves and they get all the animals that they need to go up to the temple to offer sacrifice. And they grab them up and they they go to the temple to seek the Lord. But when they get to the tabernacle or to the temple, God is not there. Frightening scenario. The place where they had met with God before, God is no longer available for a meeting. So blind by their sin, they go on as if nothing had happened. They continue to try to participate in the sacrificial system, but to no avail. God had turned His back on them. Leon Wood, a commentator, writing in all the prophets of Israel, a landmark book on the Old Testament prophets, points out that it is merely form without faithful obedience. They were going through the motions and because they were only going through the motions, God says, I have nothing to do with it. I want you to think about the frightening truth that represents. You're a dying man. There is only one person in the world who can help you. You pick up your phone, you dial 911, you call for the ambulance to come. They are the only ones who can come and revive your desperate, life-threatening crisis. And they simply say, you've reached 911. 
we're not coming. Israel goes to God for the forgiveness of their sins to avoid the hell that He has promised and that He has talked about as a result of their sin. And they take their, their sacrifice to the temple to dial up God. And God says, I am not listening. I don't hear you. Can you imagine God saying, I'm done. I don't hear you. You, you, for, For all practical purposes, you don't exist right now. God will not be a part. God's going to withdraw himself. He's going to withdraw his presence from such. The disobedience of Israel. By the way, Israel's not unfamiliar with this. This has happened before. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, God's glory departed from Israel. You remember the story. They're going out to battle and and, uh, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, come up with a bright idea. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll take the Ark of the Covenant and we'll... We'll kind of do what God told us not to do, but it's kind of got these magical powers. We're gonna we're gonna do this thing, and we're gonna we're gonna play this dangerous game of creativity and doing it our way. And they were slaughtered, absolutely slaughtered, so that when their child was born, its name was Ichabod, which literally means the glory of God has gone. God's blessing is gone. God's favor is gone. God's protection is gone. Romans 1, we see the people repeatedly ignoring God, pursuing sin, until God says, if that's what you want so bad, that's what you can have. I'm done. God's wrath is demonstrated in Scripture, oftentimes through abandonment. If that's what you want, you're going to harden your neck. You're not going to confess your sin. You're not going to seek me. Then I'm done. If that's what you want, you can have it. This is a consequence, brothers and sisters, that we need to understand in Israel's history in Hosea 1 that didn't just affect the adults, it affected the coming generations. Because for hundreds of years, them and their children and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren would be led off into captivity because they refused to turn from their sin and turn back to God. The consequence, these children who grew up knowing nothing of the true worship of God, absolute pagans themselves growing up in a pagan land. They had perverted. You look here, it talks about the new moon. The new moon will devour them. The festivals that God had given them, the monthly festivals, would swallow them up. But then in verses 8 through 15, we, we, we read of the direct consequence of wrath. It's like gangrene. The rottenness of their sin spread like spiritual gangrene and like a cancer infecting everyone around them. The picture is of a conquest, of a military conquest. Sound the trumpet! That's what you did when someone was coming to attack you. Arise and fight. Take up arms. For Americans, Paul Revere, the British are coming to arms to arms. The trumpet blows. Take up arms. 
Behind you, Benjamin, look out! God calls them to spiritual arousal. God calls them to awaken. He calls them to be renewed. Lest they go further in their sin as Ephraim had done, by the way, verses 8 through 15 are directed at Judah now. God's written Israel off. Northern ten tribes, you're gone. They're going into captivity. They've sinned. They picked their poison. God says they're going away. But now Judah, look at your cousins. Wake up. Wake up. Blow the horn in the southern cities of Israel. He says, Gibeah, Ramah, Beth-Avon. Benjamin, the northernmost tribe of the southern tribe. Wake up! Ephraim's going to become uh, desolate. Don't go their way. And yet Judah does. God finally says, Judah, you're lost too. Look what he says that they do. Verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. We, we live in a day, I think, that we're increasingly becoming uh, so dependent on GPS we forgot what things were like before GPS. You know, you go down to the city hall now, you need to get a permit for something at your house. We bought a, one of those little metal storage buildings back I don't know, five or six years ago, whatever it was. I was needing to get it put in my backyard. And you had to get a permit for it before they would deliver it. So I go down to the city and they said, well, you know, it's got to be three feet off your property line. It's got to be da-da-da-da-da, so many feet from the house. And and I was ex- fully expecting that they would send out an inspector, you know, to look at it. And I don't know, the lady just opens up her computer, zooms in on my house, takes her mouse, clicks, and to the inch can measure my yard. Surveying so much of it now is just done on computers. But in Israel's day, they still did it the old-fashioned way. You had to go out, and if this was your property line, you put a stake down in the ground, or you built a, a column of rocks. And this was my land, and it was very easy to steal land. All you had to do was in the middle of the night when no one was watching, just go out and take that stake and move it over a little bit and put it down. And little by little, you could eventually steal all of a man's land. And God says, Judah is like that. That they're going out and they're, they're moving the stake little by little. And he says they're like that. No doubt some of this was going on, but, but more than that, he says, their worship of me is like that. Judah, little by little, you're creeping into the worship of Baal, just like Israel did. It's not big steps. You're not jumping in. You're not jumping uh, in, into the prostitution cult all at one time. But little by little, you're becoming curious. It's like taking that stake and moving it a little at a time. And before you know it, you're done. That's how they did it. The princes, the leaders of Judah just slowly led their people into sin and idolatry. Because of that, Ephraim's going to be crushed. They're going to be rotten. They're going to be consumed by moths. 
sickness would encompass them. Judah is pictured as a, as a festering wound. Israel is a dying man, and they instead of running back to God, they go to a pagan king, King Jerob in Assyria. And God says to, to, to them, I'm going to be like a lion to you. What does a lion do? A lion goes, a lion attacks its prey, a lion drags it back, and then devours it. He says, what's going to happen? I'm going to take you away. I'm going to lead you into captivity under this king that you went and sold yourself to, Jerob in Assyria. I'm going to use him. He's going to drag you off into Assyria, and you're going to be in captivity there. God is going to judge them. God is going to lovingly chastise them so that they will see their sin and repent. Look at verse 15. God begins to give grace. He says, I'm going to go away and I'm going to return to my place. I'm going to temporarily disown them to destroy them. It's not what God says. God says, I'm going to do this until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. I have a purpose in this. I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm trying to save them. I'm going to do this so that eventually they will turn and seek me. I'm going to do it so that they'll forsake their syncretistic pagan combination worship here, leave that and come back to me alone. And Hosea gives us a glimpse into the future. At what someday this nation will say. And this, brothers and sisters, is where we find our hope. That when we find ourselves in a position that we have strayed, when we find ourselves in a position of God's chastisement, when we find that God's face is turned away from us, when we find that God is not dealing favorable, uh, favorably with us, we can have this confidence. Come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us. He will heal us. You see, they understood that God was chastisement, but also that God was love. He did this to us, but He'll make it right. He will bind up our wounds. He will bandage us because He has wounded us. It, it, it's like a surgeon. It, it, you, it's always beneficial that, that if you have to have a follow-up or second surgery, that you go back to the guy who did the first one. Because he knows exactly what he did. He, he knows how he tied those uh, sutures. He knows how he cuts. He knows how he does all of that. He works well in the second surgery because he knew what he did the first time. God is the one who is torn, so God has the expertise to heal. God wounded so He can bandage. Because only He knows how best to do that. And Israel understands that. 
Hosea looks forward to a day when they say, look, we are sinners. We have sinned against God. We have broken the covenant. Let us return to him because he will make it right. We know that God loves us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. Some would be tempted to look at that and say, well, that, that's, that's a foreshadowing of the resurrection. It's, it's not. It's just simply given here to show it, it took two days to go astray. It's only to take one to come home. That's how fast God will respond to a repentant sinner. It, it took twice as long to get there. But boy, God, when we repent, God reacts. God, God quickly brings us back to health and life. And then look at their resolve. He'll raise us up so that we may live before him. So let us now, I'm sorry, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, spring rain watering the earth. What confidence they had in God. They were confident in Him because He chastised them like He said He had to and like He said He would. And they knew that if God was as faithful in His judgment and His justice, then God would be equally faithful in His love and His redemption. And they say He is steadfast. We can trust Him. We know that we can go home. Like the prodigal in Luke 15, when he came to his senses, he said, I know my Father will take me back. He didn't say, man, I wonder, did he? He said, I will arise and I will go to my Father because he knew his Father would receive him. The same with Israel. They're going to awake someday. And they're going to go back to the God who not only created them, but made covenant with them. And they're going to have a personal, intimate, singular relationship with God. Because if he was faithful enough to judge, he will be faithful enough to love. They knew this. The Spirit of God will work in them to confirm this. And it will result in their salvation and healing. Brothers and sisters, we must hear the voice of God regarding our own sin. We must forsake our sin, not for the forsaking of sin of al alone, but so that we might pursue God. We can't pursue two masters. Let us forsake the one and flee to God who will heal us just as He has punished us. There's nothing that we can do that is so great that God cannot forgive. You look at what Israel did, I mean, it was pretty grotesque. It was pretty demonstrative. It was pretty blatant. And yet God forgave. There's nothing we can do that God cannot forgive. We need to have that gospel confidence, that gospel hope. Maybe we need to trust Christ the first time. Maybe we need to come to, to God to, to know Him in a saving way for the very first time. God will forgive. But for those of us who have 
come to faith in Christ years ago and we still struggle with our sanctification, we still struggle with, with indwelling sin and ongoing things, we need to remember too that there is mercy in Christ. There's mercy for our impatience. There's mercy for our anger. There's mercy for our love. There is grace to cover every sin. We can't do it on our own. Let's flee back to Christ. Let's base our life on the gospel that continually washes us and strengthens us and makes us new because He will bandage our wounds left by our sin. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Father, if there's someone here today that's struggling, they're struggling to know You, they're struggling with their sin in relationship to You. Father, cause them to know that yes, their sin is is wrong. Father, cause all of us to see our sin for the horrible uh, blight that it is. But Father, help us to understand also that, that, that You are a God of redemption. That You have wounded so that You can heal. That You have crushed so that You can rebuild. May we run to the mercy of Christ. May we have the confidence of Israel to say, Come now, let us return to the Lord. It took two days to get to where we are, but it'll only take one to come home. Because your mercy is great. And your grace is deep for those who will face the consequences of their sin. Those of us who will face the very real rebellion that our sin is. Father, thank You that You are mercy. Thank You that You are love. But Father, thank You that You are also chastisement. So that we would know sin. That we would run to Christ. May we never forget and may we always be faithful to tell others that yes, God is love, but God is also chastisement. All for the glory of God. Do You accomplish these things? Father, make us holy. Father, keep us from sin. Father, cause us to pursue your face. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.